Everyone takes citizenship for granted as an inalienable right. But is it? Join us for a conversation about citizenship, human rights, and state powers in a post 9-11 world. Joining us today is Professor Fanula Ni Eloing, Professor at the University of Minnesota and Professor of Law here at Queen's University, Belfast. Professor Ni Eloing was appointed by the United Nations Human Rights Council as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms while countering terrorism. In this capacity, she worked closely with states and the UN entities to advance human rights protections in some of the most difficult contexts globally. She was re-elected by states for a further three-year term in 2020 and has just completed her mandate. Joining her is Tasneem Okuji, a criminal defense solicitor working in the field of terrorism and terrorism-related offending in the UK. He has been engaged in this field of work within the context of legal defense for over 20 years. Tasneem has worked on cases both in the UK and abroad concerning individuals who have been accused of an affinity to terrorist organizations and on cases where the accused has traveled to conflict zones and returned to their home countries. In March 2015, he was involved in advising the families of the three schoolgirls, Shamima Begum, Kazida Sultana and Amira Abbasi, who left Bethnal Green Academy and traveled from East London to ISIS-controlled Syria. I'm your host, Dr. Yasin Brunger, a lecturer in human rights law here in the School of Law at Queen's University, Belfast. I specialize in international law, human rights, and gender. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Just to introduce our listeners to you a bit more, I wanted to ask, how did you get into this area of work? It would be interesting to find out what drew you to counterterrorism and human rights. So I, I think Belfast drew me into counterterrorism and human rights. I went to law school at Queen's uh, in 1987, which was still, I suppose, at the height of the conflict. I joined an organization called the Committee on the Administration of Justice within three weeks of getting to the law school at Queen's. And my undergraduate and then I went on to do a PhD here were really driven by an interest in this intersection between armed conflict, violence, human rights and international law. So I, I think simply living in a conflict zone and seeing the tensions um, that then existed was what drew me in. Tasneem, how about yourself? What drew you to this area of work? Well, we have the uh, Terrorism Act 2000, and I'd actually graduated in 2000. And really, it was, it was an incredibly topical issue because you suddenly have a body of law that lands on the pages of, um, of, of the sort of criminal law body of, of work, and, it, and it's very different in complexion to that which came before. And so that, that piqued interest, but also the fact was, was that because it was brand new legislation, there was no experience with it. So people were looking at it with, uh, with eyes and spectacles that were based on principle and first principle. So that was very attractive, albeit the subject matter isn't so much so, but the, um, the text and the operation of it was, and that's what piqued our interest really into it. So that takes us nicely to go back to that moment of 9-11, if I may take you both back to that time. The world witnesses a horrific act of terrorism. 
And indelibly, 9-11 has left a uh, mark on how we think about counterterrorism, how we think about human rights in that context. I wonder if both of you could reflect on what you think the legacies of 9-11 are as lived through the last two decades. Well, I mean, it, it's not just the law that, that has changed. It's policy, policing, even the fabric of how re- events are reported in the press. Yeah. So in terms of censorship and self-censorship, which is even more pernicious, you have issues of whether or not a journalist's source is protected. In most scenarios, a journalist can hold back on their source. But under terrorism legislation, they may be compelled to give up their sources and notes and and what have you. Um, Beyond that, it's also the fact of traveling through airports where things that you may think are private conversations between yourself and your family or friends on your WhatsApp or other social media, all those become very much not private under force of you know, law. When if you are stopped under Schedule 7 and these matters, your devices are looked at. Now, it's very important that people or human beings generally have a space where they can be private. There is a space for the public space and a space for the private. Um, and if you one feels or gains the experience that there is no way that private, then that causes one's behavior to change in a, in a self-regulatory way yeah. and not necessarily for the better. So I think the legacy uh, over the arc of 20 years is that we've certainly lost not just a lot of freedom down to what has been prescribed in terms of what you can do, reading books or looking at websites under different acts, but also that people are just cautious about about looking at certain subject matters. And these are subject matters that are in the press and have been in the press every day, terrorism, internationally, and what have you, but people are fearful of comment. And unfortunately, what that means is that a space has been created for government whereby, whereby because there is no comment and no pushback, then all sorts of things can happen in the darkness of that, of that lack of um, light or investigation. But I think that's one of the most pernicious parts of it. The last twenty years. So I guess I I think nine eleven was clearly a cataclysmic event or a shape shifting event in some ways. But I actually am not so sure. I, I think it's a continuity. Actually, I think for those of us perhaps living in Belfast through the conflict, the shape for many societies that abused counterterrorism law predates nine eleven. I think for folks who lived in colonial spaces, whether it was British martial law or French state of siege, and we see the remnants of sort of exceptionalities around terrorism regulation in multiple societies. So I think that was there before. I think 9-11 acted as an accelerator and a legitimizer of certain kinds of state actions, both the kinds of intrusions that have been mentioned but also the legitimation primarily through the UN Security Council that every single state was now responsible for preventing terrorism, even when there was no terrorism in those societies. Um, And I think we have some very concrete legacies. I mean, we had the practices of rendition and torture, which were used by the United States government. I, as Special Rapporteur, visited the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, this year, and we still have 30 uh, 
uh, now 31 men who remain detained there. That's a very concrete, specific legacy for Muslim men and the Muslim community of the targeting on a racialized and religious grounds of a particular people. And I think we've seen, uh, again, through that process of legitimation on the Security Council, we've seen an acceleration of counterterrorism law across the globe and its use primarily against dissidents, human rights defenders, lawyers, doctors engaged in impartial humanitarian work. So whether that's women drivers in Saudi Arabia, everybody I think is aware that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has cracked down on women drivers. What they're less aware of is that it's counterterrorism law that those women have been charged with. And whether it's 300 organizations in Nicaragua or cracking down on trade unionists in Venezuela, um, or a million and a half Uyghurs locked up in Xinjiang, China. The basis for all of that repression is counterterrorism. So I would say it's been this extraordinary legitimizer and accelerator for the embedding institutionally and normatively of counterterrorism law. Yeah. And I think with both of the, the points that you raise, it's interesting to think about a generation that grows up in a post 9-11 world that sees this as normal. And for those of us who are of older uh, um, years, we have seen a change in, in the world and that use of the vernacular of counterterrorism to balloon into spaces far, far away from what we perhaps would have imagined in the immediacy of a 9-11 attack. And I think with that, I, I'm curious as to the both of you reflecting on the role of human rights and, and how it's been tested over the last sort of two decades, specifically as to where you may point to victories within our human rights advocacy and our work in human rights and areas where you feel human rights has actually been pushed to some extraordinary limits. And it, it's, it's, it's forced us to rethink and perhaps reimagine the role of human rights in this new world. So, um, uh, Tasman, if you want to go first. Well, I think it's important to remember that law is, uh, is driven by our policymakers. Mm. It, it's not the lawyers that really uh, create the law. It's our politicians that do so. Allegedly, they do so on behalf of their democratic mandate. But certainly the complexion of what our government looks like and their stated aims of policy ends up being what our laws are. Um, so, uh, in terms of the UK, we've, we've certainly seen that there was a strong amount of, uh, pressure that our policymakers made after, after 9-11 to clamp down on, on terrorism in a way that was more sweeping than targeted. Yeah. So, we, we, we have the idea of Schedule 7 mentioned earlier, the ability for, for officials at airports and, um, in transport centers, international transport centers to, without any suspicion, detain someone and then question them without the right of them to, uh, to, to have no comment to those questions. So that right being that if they failed to answer questions, they'd then be committing a further effect. Now, but I can't tell you how you know, seismically different that is from any other operation of the criminal law. The, the idea that you do not have the rights to your own silence and the idea that you're criminalized for your silence. Um, the only um, area that comes to mind like that is 
Well, there was a section 44 as well, but that got struck down. However, there, there's the issue of section 38B of the Terrorism Act once again, which is failing to report on someone where you are aware that they may be involved in terrorist-related activity. But, you know, the, these are quite offensive to the idea that most people have about what, what the operation your rights are under removal, and, and they are offensive. What are the successes around that? Well, those have been challenged. Section Schedule uh, 7 has not been successfully challenged um, in that it still exists. Something very similar to it, which was Section 44 of the Terrorism Act, which allowed police officers to question you without suspicion in a designated area. Very similar piece of legislation, but not in ports, wherever a designated area was. That, that was successfully challenged and struck down. But the general arc of it was that whenever any piece of legislation had been interpreted by the court in a more conservative way, then suddenly acts will appear within a few months or years that then create a specific area of, uh, of, of, uh, statute, which then sort of remedies the, the, the clarification, which was against sort of government pressure that, that previous Judges had, had passed, and one of those examples is a contrast between Section 57 and 58 of the Terrorism Act 2000, which is having material likely to be used to terrorists either within terms of that. And then this area of glorification of terrorism. I mean, glorification is a word that really doesn't belong anywhere except inside of the religious content. It's a very unusual word to find in, in statute, but but the idea that someone provides or, or appears to be giving support to a particular group being criminalized, um, what does that actually mean? You know, glorification being why do you have to effectively worship that organization or do you just mention something positive in passing about an organization? And so these sort of split hairs or these shades of import have been tested. But every time they are, we, we have seen that successive governments are quite happy to completely discount the logic and reason of, of our courts and put in new legislation to just make it illegal specific. So I, I, I think that's been somewhat depressing over the arc of 20 years. Yeah, I mean, maybe to start with what have we won, I, I would agree. I think we've won very, very little. And it's not that the, we, we've had, I think, there's a an, very important role that lawyers have played in challenging Counterterrorism norms. So I think of cases like the Hamdan case at the yes. Europe at the U.S. Supreme Court or Boumediene. So those were wins. Yeah. I mean, one win. Common Article Three applies to Guantanamo. Uh, Boumediene, you have a right to habeas corpus. But actually, that didn't materially affect the lives of most of the men who ex who 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 spent uh, further for some of them decade even after those quote legal wins. So I think we have to distinguish between the legal wins and the practical effect on the lives of the people who are most affected by the use and misuse of counterterrorism. And I, I think overall, I would say human rights has been losing partly because the terminology of, you know, we don't have a globally agreed definition of terrorism. So by and large, states get to call whatever they like, including whether it's glorification or apology for terrorism or material support is another kind of sort of cataclysmically wide definition. So because of that, states live in a universe where actually they get to create the universe in terms of what constitutes quote of acts of terrorism. Um, and then the use of those 
sort of normative frameworks against historically marginalized communities is consistent. So, and that includes, um, you know, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, communities of color, women, LGBTQ plus communities. I mean, again, um, counterterrorism has become the edge of a very hard knife. And it's not that we, I mean, the role of law in challenging the misuse of counterterrorism remains critical. But I would say we are, this is a narrative of consistent loss because we win. And then it's a little bit like the Sisyphean myth, you know, we, we win, but then it turns out we're rolling yet another massive rock up a mountain because the state has adjusted, reconfigured, redefined. And even, and it is this analogy that you win, but then you lose again because you have to go and refight that battle. So I, I think human rights lawyers <laughs> are tired, actually. We're quite tired because we, we're yeah. constantly fighting and refighting old battles. Um, and that's, I mean, we are in a way, it's a kind of a Sisyphean myth story where we still have to push those rocks up the mountain. But the reality is that the scale of state power weighed against us is extraordinarily high. And I'm curious, um, Fanula, in your work as Special Rapporteur, whether you saw states being influenced, being inspired by behavior of other states when it comes to this use of counterterrorism in spaces and against people that originally may not have been the, the imagination of who uh, counterterrorist strategies and legislation may be targeting, but using that, misusing it, I should say, um, and being inspired by seeing what are global leaders of human rights, the UK, the United States, we could name a number of countries, and feeling like, well, if they can break the rules, I guess we can too. Or do states effectively make these decisions because they know human rights law is not able to hold them accountable in the ways that we as human rights activists and lawyers may wish to see? I I'm curious about that. I mean, I think it was my experience as Special Rapporteur, and I completed a global study last year on the impact of counterterrorism, a global study on the impact of counterterrorism on civil society and civic space. And we traveled, my team and I traveled the globe, I would say. We crisscrossed the globe hearing firsthand from civil society actors, NGOs, human rights defenders in every corner, every region. And I think what we found was consistent, which is consistent misuse. Mm -hmm. And the patterns, what I would call the playbook of counterterrorism, is playing out in multiple spaces. It's playing out in Latin America, where states such as El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, see the benefit of using counterterrorism to uh, not only address kind of crime issues, which are complex issues, but actually they see counterterrorism as an extra set of tools that they can use at will. Uh, whether it's China in Hong Kong or Xinjiang, whether it's Russia in its use of extremism law, which we've seen accelerated since the war in Ukraine broke out. I think the playbook is consistent. And I think what those states learned two things early on. One is that the fact that states such as the United States could essentially throw out the rule book and the cost of Guantanamo and the existence of Guantanamo has been uh, Xinjiang. Why did a state like China think it could get away with locking up large numbers of people without cost? Well, because that has been used before, mostly without cost. Why do we have 70,000 women, children, and men detained without trial in northeast Syria? Because actually the states, including the United States and the global coalition against Daesh, 
have internalized the fact that there's pretty much no cost to holding people without trial, whether you're a state or a non-state actor. So I think that learning has really been imbued. I think we see, I mean, cut and paste uh, of legislation from different countries. It moves through space. So there's a kind of a movement of counterterrorism. But I would also say that human rights law and practice faces this enormous challenge that parallel to sort of counter to human rights law is another body of norms and institutions, particularly at the United Nations, which are in competition with human rights. And they're frankly winning. And the largest and growing part of the UN is counterterrorism. The place where the greatest normative growth legally across the globe is, is counterterrorism. So it turns out like that all of these things are happening simultaneously. Legitimization, borrowing, learning from bad behavior, and the creation of an alternative universe of law, counterterrorism law, that states can go and say, oh, I don't need to use human rights law because actually I have these other tools that I'm allowed to use. So yeah, I, again, to go back to the analogy of losing, I think we're losing this battle. Yeah. Yeah. And... Tasneem, I'm I, I'm I'm also interested in 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 within the UK context the way in which misuse happens outside of the scope of human rights law into areas such as immigration law, criminal law. So I I wonder if you could talk more about that and the tentacles of counterterrorism um, through through the state spreading to these different bodies of law. Sure. So I mean, the most ubiquitous form of that that people may come across without even knowing is, is where it comes into banking. So if you are a person of interest, and this is like truly bizarre, that there are private companies out there who scroll the internet and have access to databases that are from other countries, immigration databases, and also criminal databases. They then collect this and also sell access to this to the banking sector. And if a person within these databases has assessed somebody to be an extremist, which doesn't actually have any meaning in law, you know, what, whatever that may mean. But then suddenly one can find that they're, that they're not afforded banking services, that their entire accounts are closed down. And it's also very difficult to find out why that's happened because there's an interaction between the laws around terrorism and also tipping off. So financial services. So the banks will sit there and say, well, we can't tell you why your account has been sort of blocked or what have you, because there, there would be potentially a breach of tipping off law. So people can find themselves who share similar names with people who may be on these lists in a complete lacuna where they can't work out why something's happening, a stonewall behind that, and no real understanding of how to, one well, of how to make the first steps of trying to, trying to redress it. Um, and, and that, that's a pretty common experience, unfortunately, for people in this space. Beyond that, in terms of immigration, I mean, we've all seen quite clearly that the Home Secretary, well, certainly a few years ago, and, and even now, have been willing to exercise a very narrow area of law that's existed for a long time, which is citizenship stripping. But we've seen that now expanded so that a very much larger class of individuals, uh, this law is being applied to and having themselves stripped of it. But, you know, this was previously, you know, it was known that Stripping the citizenship could happen in exceptional circumstances where somebody isn't stateless, and also that they are seen as a a sort of titanic threat to the state. That the idea that their existence is is going to be on a sort of Guy Fawkes level worth of 
behavior. That was the understanding of how that law operated. And, it was a, and also, it was how that was interpreted. But the law, the, the backstops that legislation about what the criteria for somebody having themselves citizenship be has been watered down massive. Now they're just not conducive to the public good. Whereas previously it was effectively, you know, uh, a threat to them, to, to the, to the material level of the state effectively, a, a very high bar. And then that understanding is now gone that this is an exception. This is somewhere, something that's only used in very rare circumstances. Now it's seen as a, as a viable option, as a tool that's as available as any other tool on the table for a home secretary to, to, to class, uh, or use to, to cause a problem to be not on UK shores. Let's put it that way. Theoretically, somebody, you know, and they can be stripped of citizenship whilst in country, but it's very rarely used there. It's used once a person's outside of country. And that makes it even harder for someone to actually try and challenge, um, the, the, the fact of the stripping of the decision to strip. And beyond that, now, well, the, the law has changed that you don't even have to be notified that you've been stripped and you will only find out once you attempt to trip, which is, um, you know, beyond surprising, we would say. For those uh, those caught up in it. Thank you, Fanula. Does this practice concern you in terms of the trajectory that it now goes in in that in that playbook, adding to the playbook? And would you be able to explain to the listeners why members of the public should be concerned about states using this as a practice within their toolbox? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen. Um, a massive uptick in citizenship stripping as a kind of a an act of the state uh, again on grounds that are concerning on multiple levels one is the lack of procedural regularity and the kind of fundamental undermining of procedural due process i think of citizenship as the right to have rights right citizenship is your entry point to all rights and so when you take away that entry point you leave individuals in an absolutely vulnerable state to have multiple layers of their rights stripped away. And the second thing that worries me greatly is that I think, you know, if we look at the kinds of laws and the international conventions on, for example, the prevention of statelessness, um, there was a real, I think, consensus and understanding at the end of the Second World War uh, that to be stateless was an unacceptable thing, that the international community as a whole recognized the significance of the state as the gateway to rights. Mm -hmm. And so even international law is very clear that you can't leave a person stateless. And in reality, what we see is states using counterterrorism law to get around that absolute prohibition and a degree of comfort with the idea of a person being stateless is just okay. The other thing I would say is that statelessness or the stripping of citizenship is an increasingly raced, ethnicized practice. And what it does in states like the United Kingdom is create two tiers of citizenship because whose citizenship can be taken away? If we look statistically in the United Kingdom, for example, it is uh, in practice generally black and brown people whose right to be a citizen are taken away. It's historically marginalized communities whose rights are taken away. And it's the people who are most vulnerable to the intrusion of the state whose right to citizenship, to have rights, is taken away. So the idea that we use the sort of citizenship as a way to create two tiers within society 
And those tears are intersected by race, by religion, by historic vulnerability. Seems to me something people should deeply care about in an increasingly multi-ethnic, multi-racial society, because actually at a fundamental level, it undermines the integrity of that project because it says there are two types of citizens in this country, citizens whose citizenship can be taken away and citizens who can't. Um, and I think that should concern us all. I think it's also just a fundamental idea of the contract between the citizen and the state, that the state should not be able and again, when we say the state, we mean a particular government at a particular time, take away your right to belong to the body politic. And that seems to me to sort of in some very fundamental way undo the contract between the state and those who live within it. And I think that's, regrettably, that's what we're seeing in the United Kingdom and in a number of other countries. Tasneem, does that resonate with you? It, it does in terms of the, in the same way that the you know the, the the gates of hell sort of resonate with people um, as a, as as at all. It, it is it is problematic that ultimately it comes down to what 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 do our politicians think of us? The the people who elected them into into government do they actually care about their role of looking after the individual's rights and the, the rights of the masses? And what worries me great is that. The operation of all of these things dehumanizes or creates a lack of humanity in inherently within the people who are operating, not just at the policy level, but also at the medium level and at the point in the call phase, in that effectively an outcome is asked from these those operating the official, which is that this person will have their right stripped. And then a route to finding that outcome is insisted on. And that really, that, the operation of that causes a type of, a type of practice within our organizations that simply mean they don't look at the humanity of people. They're looking only at outcome driven, driven, um, situation. And I think that's just very, very negative for any society. I said, well, I'll be clear about that. It's, it's fascistic in any society. And I think with that, I'm curious again as to, how we resist that. Often in the classroom with my students, when we talk about these particularly um, sensitive and difficult legal questions, they leave with a sense of hopelessness. So I always want to make space for them to imagine the resistance to particularly the apparatus of the state when it is uh, abusing counterterrorism and human rights. And so I'm, I'm, want to give space for us to imagine what resistance looks like. Does it come from our courts? Do we rely on hope coming from courts to, to somehow draw the line as to what the state can do and cannot do? And, and specifically on this question of stripping citizenship, do we look to civil society and human rights organizations? Do we look to the public discourse and perhaps moving the public narrative around this so they don't see the headlines about the jihadi bride, but they see the person, they see the individual, and they say, no matter what this person has done, they must be returned back here. The problem belongs back here in this territory. Where, where should we find our fountains of hope in resisting something as extensive 
as stripping an individual of their citizenship. However much discourse you find, however much disagreement you find uh, on any given subject, Shamima Begum subject yep. being one that was quite, you know, quite obviously one that created a, a public discourse. But those differences of opinion that see, you see across the dinner table are happening at every level. Mm. They're happening in politics. They're happening within the, the parties that are passing these laws. And they're happening in the courts as yeah. well. Now, to take Shamima Begum's example as a, as a sort of, you know, point in, in case, various appeals were undertaken. And in the court of appeal, we got one decision, which was based on the principle that, that a decision maker is subject to the, to the law, as in any decision that decision maker makes is at least in the theory subject to examination by the court. And then we, we moved on to the, to the Supreme Court, which then reversed that effectively to say that there are some types of decisions a decision-maker makes in the context of national security that really the court shouldn't interfere effectively, diametrically opposed, even processes of thinking. on. But the fact that there is that debate, that very strong difference between the Court of Appeal and Navigation and the Supreme Court tells you that there is this discourse happening. And so, yes, it's worth taking up those points through the, the courts, but also in civil society, because the law is simply a reflection of what our policymakers think we want them to do. They may skew the, you know, the particular part of the public that they're focused, but in theory, it's a reflection of the culture. And so you have to take up this fight on every level, on the perception level, in the papers, in society, to have the discussion and have the spaces to have those discussions so that people actually apply their minds to what this actually means. Because if you look at just Shamima Begum in the early stages, on one uh, viewing, and, and on the very basic viewing, is, oh, here's a, someone who's a terrorist. Let's keep them out of the country. But actually, very few people then apply their minds to, well, what does this actually mean when you take somebody's citizenship away? What, what, how does that affect you? And start thinking about the, the deeper issues behind it. And that's quite hard to do, but it requires a lot of effort. Yeah, I mean, I think what I say to my students is this is the best fight you could ever be in. If you want to be in a fight that matters, if you want to live a life in the law where you actually get to really fight for some things that are intrinsic, not just to, to law, but to the good of society, this is the best place to be. You, you wouldn't want to be in a different fight. And so I, I really encourage my students to think about the value of the place where they do their work in the law. And that, that I think, often uh, makes certain students, not all, choose the most difficult fights because that's also the most interesting place to be as a lawyer, the most creative place to be as a lawyer, and the place where actually, where, when change happens, it, it's, its movement is sometimes glacier-like, but when you kind of contribute to that change, um, the changes are really, ch like, they're transformative. Um, and I think I would say, like, as work in my work as special rapporteur, I really fundamentally believe an independent judiciary matters because when you are in countries where there is no independence of the judiciary, you realize that the kind of the nature of the fight is so much harder. So again, as lawyers, I think it's not just worth fighting the fight on the issues, but actually fighting the fight to maintain the independence and integrity of judges, even judges you fundamentally disagree with, right? That you have a you have a beef with them. But actually your beef can be worked out through that intrinsic process of of lawyering in the best way possible. 
And and I think to go back to the particular case we we talked about, Shamima Begum. Yeah. Um, I met Shamima this summer when I was in Syria uh, as special rapporteur and many other Britons and other nationalities who remained detained in the, the in the prisons in northeast Syria. And again, I, I think this point about narrative change is essential in society. If people could set their minds to the fact that a young woman was groomed online, was a victim of trafficking, had two children before at the age of 18, which means that she was subject to non, under, the, under British law, non-consensual sexual relationships, and then gave birth in a war zone to three children, and all of them died. If we could talk about the facts of this young and tragic woman's life and imagine what it is like to be that young woman with all of the harm that she has experienced and all of the harm that was done to her, that we would fundamentally change the conversation. And we simply cannot cede the space of defining her in terms that actually do not see her humanity and her vulnerability, as well as her strength, because she survived the unimaginable. And I, I think there's a lot of fight left in that case, precisely because um, how she was treated was unconscionable. And it seems to me that when we read the judgments, we also find judges, in fact, saying we may have to cede to the decision maker, but actually you sense their own sense of outrage and appallingness to what happened to this young woman. So that's our work as lawyers. Our work as lawyers is to reveal the humanity and complexity of individuals' lives. And so I think that's not hopeless. I think that's incredibly affirming as a lawyer. And it's something, you know, fundamentally, it's, it's just something worth doing with your life. So to just provoke our thinking a little bit further, is there any possibility that if we move away from the, the question of rights for a second and just park that, and we focus on the human within human rights and the humanity that you just mentioned there, Fanula, can there ever be a humane counterterrorism strategy? Yes, of course. The idea that you have a counterterrorism strategy, the very idea of that is that it's born out of protecting the public from something that the public should never have to face, which is the, the threat of violence. And that is, unfortunately, reality. The drivers behind that are what governments should be thinking about as to why that's happened. Um, but, but ultimately, the protection of the public is an important consideration of all, of all states. Um, the problem that most of us as lawyers have always grappled with is that when it comes to terrorism, there appears to be a very large class of individuals who are wrapped up in the, in that. That really shouldn't be there. They're, they're clearly not there for, for the reasons why the terrorism laws exist. They're, the terrorism laws expand. They start covering not just what people expect as terrorism, which is people blowing things up and, and, and doing mass violence for the sake of, uh, sort of political issue, but then just, you know, criminalizing the downloading of books or reading of certain books on certain websites. That moves into really, really difficult territory when we're supposed to be part of a state that has freedom of conscience, freedom of expression. And, and, you know, the, the two things are almost incompatible to have, to have the concept of criminalizing knowledge, really. I think a humane strategy would be just to power it back to what, what the public expects the police and authorities do, which is to protect them from violence. 
And anything beyond that, anything that steps over into the bounds of your personal life, your educational life, and not into an area where you were involved in any activity, well, that, that certainly is a red line for where states should not be allowed to enter. Yeah. Does that echo with you? For, for yeah, me? it does. I mean, I, I have always said, you know, I can make an argument for, for uh, at counterterrorism that's based on protecting rights. But more often than not, in the last 60 years when I was special rapporteur, I often, most of my interlocutors were the police, the military, the intelligence forces, the security arms of states around the world. And I would often start with a, an argument from security. I start with the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, which recognizes security as a human right. It's, it is not contraindicative to talk about security as a right. We all need security in our lives, in our personal lives, in our communal lives. And I have seen firsthand the harm of terrorism, whether that was in Belfast or um, in other countries. And I spent much of the last six years talking to victims of terrorism and understanding the enormous cost to people, whether it's the 9-11 families or families in France after the Bataclan, where I interviewed many, many young people who were in that arena the night that happened, that, that, that terrorist attack happened. So I think we have to be very clear that uh, indiscriminate attacks on civilians are often some of the most egregious and profound human rights violations because it, it's, it's, it's harm to individuals physically and psychologically is immense. But when we do abusive counterterrorism, we also undermine the rights of the victims of terrorism. When we use torture and interrogate people, we can't have trials of those people because we have eliminated the possibility of fair trials. So not only have you harmed the individual, but you've also harmed the victims of terrorism because you cannot actually redeem their rights because you've engaged in abusive counterterrorism. And I would also say that abusive counterterrorism, which is not based on the sort of core of protection, is also generally ineffective. And I would say we've had 20 years of really ineffective counterterrorism. Because if we look at whether or not any of these strategies have worked in the societies where they've been applied, the general answer is actually they haven't worked very well at all. What they've done is create a cycle of repression and coercion and violence because they feed the conditions conducive to terrorism. So actually, bad counterterrorism is the worst thing for preventing terrorism. And I have generally found that when you make that argument to the security sectors of the state, and when you say to them, you know, this kind of work should be subject to the same kinds of standards we hold any place of public policy accountable yeah. to, does it work? Is it effective, even on its own terms? And is it counterproductive? And in many of the cases, it turns out the current strategies of kinetic counterterrorism and rights abusive counterterrorism that we see in most societies are just profoundly not conducive to prevention. And so that brings us back. What's the core of good counterterrorism policy? It's rooted in public policymaking that listens to the most effective community, that is participative with all of those who may be affected by counterterrorism policy and practice, and that is actually benchmarks, not just against human rights, but against its capacity to be effective on the measures of uh, creating the conditions that are less likely to bring about more violence. 
And the problem is that we don't have a lot of states who think that way. No, so. indeed. Um, my final question to round off this discussion is to imagine us, we started off in the past, but I want us to project ourselves into the future. In 20 years' time, if we, we reassemble here in the law school and have this discussion again, what would you imagine would be our challenges that we could be facing? Are you hopeful as to specific things that maybe wouldn't be on the landscape when it comes to counterterrorism and human rights? I think let's be futuristic and think about what 20 years' time might look like. In this geography, where we are now? Yes. I, I think we'll be begging for food in 20 years' time. Um, law and all of these ideas are, are dependent upon resources, and the world is being reimagined away from a sort of fiat-based system um, into a commodity-based system. And where we are in this corner of the world does not produce very much. And if, if the entire system is based upon commodity trade of actual goods, and we're in a very, very weak position in 20 years' time. I think we'll see mass emigration from Europe rather than immigration into you. So every other question is sort of predicated on yeah. that. So Yeah, our survival and what that means and what we need protection from changes quite significantly. Fanula? Yeah, I mean, I think when I don't think about counterterrorism, <laughs> what I think about is the poly crisis, which yeah. is the multiple crises of environment, climate, and water that we are facing, uh, extinctions of systems. And I think one of the things that we know historically, whether we go back to the Roman Emperor or we go to the Middle Ages, is that faced with crisis, what do states use? They use the kinds of powers that we've been talking about. And in fact, we've been seeing in multiple countries the use of counterterrorism and security powers against environmental activists, yeah. against those so what do I predict in a, in a world of crisis, which is, I think, where we're heading, we're going to see more use of these powers, and we're going to see them adapting and changing into new forms of crises management, un unless we change them profoundly with all of the system structural defects that they have today. The other thing that uh, keeps me awake at night, it certainly kept me awake at night when I was special rapporteur and had me have my phone checked every couple of weeks to make sure it wasn't and contaminated is that um, I think we live in a world of surveillance and where the, the, yeah. the, the boundary between privacy and the state is disappearing completely. I think in 20 years time, the kinds of technologies that we're talking about actually now developed and rationalized on the, on the basis of countering terrorism, whether that is biometric data collection, uh, whether that is um, API and PNR that you now have to give when you go on planes, I would predict we'll be using those on trains and on waterways. And even when people use roles that are toll roles, there'll be ways in which our movements will be tracked. Um, and I think um, the, the use of military uh, spyware, which is pr fast proliferating commercial spyware, which is fast proliferating, including in the United Kingdom, um, will uh, and surveillance technology will be ubiquitous. And so I think we have a lot to fight for. I think the biggest places of fight right now are in the environment, in the poly crisis. They're also in the surveillance society and lawyers have a hugely important role to play in, in, in actually fighting for the boundaries of the private in a world where the private is about to disappear. 
Thank you so much, uh, Fanula and Tasneem. Uh, appreciate this very, very fascinating and interesting discussion. I thank you for your time, for your reflections, and I hope those listening have enjoyed LawPod today. In the show notes, we will put details of some of the sources that we mentioned for follow-up and further reading for your interest. Thank you very much for listening.